You're listening to Marketing News Canada, Canada's number one show featuring the brightest minds in marketing, PR, and digital advertising. Okay, quick one. What does PPP stand for? Public-Private Partnership. Ah! It is an underknown and understated term. The reason I say that is because there's a woman named Mariana Mazzucato who's my favorite theorist right now. And she's my favorite theorist because I'm sort of obsessed with the fact that society has gone way too far towards capitalism in a manner that has lost sight of like what the purpose of government or economics yeah. or capitalism is. And one of the ways to rein it back in is to figure out that balance between public and private sector. Yeah. And this woman, Mariana Mazzucato, has a couple different theories that I really like a lot. One of them is all about starting with the mission. So it's like mission-based policymaking or economies, i.e., we want to solve affordable housing in Canada and then work back from that mission towards policies instead of constantly being responsive and and sort of like trying to balance a bunch of interests all at the same time, but with the big strategy. The one that relates more closely to public-private partnerships is about how most relationships between government and those they procure from or contract with right now are not symbiotic. They're more parasitic where like government pays and they deliver a service and half the time it doesn't actually do what they wanted it to do. And then they hire another McKinsey to do the same thing. And what would ideally be the case is both organizations benefit together, like sort of almost a pay for performance kind of world in which if they deliver, then et cetera. And so that symbiotic type of public private partnership, her favorite example of is if the U S government or my favorite example, I should say from her book is if the U S government had invested in Apple and actually take an equity in all of the components which they actually funded because they funded almost of the basics of science behind almost every component in the iPhone, then they wouldn't have to chase Apple to Ireland to tax them. And it's that kind of invest in the private sector, but then keep some of the equity in it rather than like invest in it and then desperately try to fundraise or tax or so anyways, that's that's another recent obsession. And I think it relates to a lot of the kinds of work that you and I do around education and workforce development, because the institutions that are currently doing the best at delivering value in education and workforce development, unfortunately, are often private or sort of right on that periphery between public and private, rather than like your core rural community college, which is probably the kind of organization that needs to be doing the best in order to help because they have, they're helping the neediest people. And so again, I think we can strike a different balance by creating education and workforce development and public-private partnerships that are symbiotic. Love that. Love that. I want to welcome everyone to Marketing News Canada. I want to introduce you to Jake, who builds public and private partnerships between governments, workforce development organizations, universities, and LinkedIn. He advises the Learning Economy Foundation and Readocracy and is on the boards of Ontario Tech Talent, the Canadian Club, and founded Lighthouse Labs. Jake, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So right off the news, the show is publishing. People might have seen it, whatever. They've read the news. Lighthouse Lab's announcement. Tell us what happened, those that might have missed that news piece. Yeah, so a couple of clarifications here. I founded Lighthouse with the current CEO, COO, and a few other folks, and have been loosely involved for the past eight years while I've been full-time employed at LinkedIn, but really have sort of identified with it much more than I have done anything substantive with regard to Lighthouse since founding it. and. So I'm speaking from a relatively superficial knowledge of how things are working, but I am extremely excited that 
We are now working even more closely than we ever have with the federal government in this case, but we've worked with many provincial governments and local governments in the past to deliver the same kind of training that we've delivered for profit and where students pay. And, you know, we've always had bursaries, et cetera. But rather, now there is a large cohort of folks that are going to get free education, public education, paid for by the federal government. And what I find particularly compelling is it actually relates all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, because that's an example of a public-private partnership that is actually probably going to change how, is going to change how Lighthouse is structured, right? We no longer will have the stereotypical boot camp model of X person pays, I don't know, 10K, I'm making up the numbers for eight weeks of training. And I'll, I'll pause just to interrupt myself to say that model has been uniquely successful in getting people into jobs. So I think our placement rates at some point have been 98%. There's no public post-secondary probably in the world that can say the same thing. And yet there is something to the fact that, you know, only the people who can pay the 10K have access to those incredible employment opportunities. So finding a way to rebalance that even within Lighthouse is a bit of a microcosm of the broader public-private debate in education or more generally. And I think it's going to be really interesting and positive for us to explore how, even within the company, we, we do that balance. And those that have yet to discover Lighthouse Labs, give us the, the, the skinny on that. And, and especially in the marketing world, those that are marketers, CMOs, you know, we deal with websites and you know, apps and coding and stuff all the time. So give us maybe the connection between what you do and how it impacts marketers. Sounds good. Again, Lighthouse is a small part of what I do. Most of what I do is LinkedIn focused, yeah. whether it's on workforce development using LinkedIn talent solutions or otherwise skills-based hiring, et cetera. But Lighthouse is a software development bootcamp. So practically speaking, we were created when my two co-founders and I at a small software development shop nine, 10 years ago were frustrated because we couldn't hire enough developers here in Canada. And a uh, competing bootcamp, the first in Canada, Bitmaker, had just started, and we weren't, to be frank, particularly impressed with their education. We were two of my co-founders who were teaching at this school, and we sort of thought we could do better. And so we moved to Vancouver from Toronto and started this new institution that that was following in the footsteps of many U.S. bootcamps, training people in eight to ten weeks on how to be a software developer. And the result was amazing. Honestly, it grew far, far faster and was far more successful than the software development company we created. With one key challenge, I'd say, and, and this is important, I think, for most people in tech in particular, or maybe even finance, to realize, to some extent, maybe less so in marketing, but there's been this obsession in tech forever with venture capital and that like hockey stick growth that startups we picture startups having. And unfortunately, I think that is a tiny percentage of the economy, i.e. the successful startups that are unicorns or whatever are such like a not even a one one thousandth of the startups that get started, like one one millionth, that they're not a good model for most companies. And they are specifically not a good model for boot camps. Why? Because boot camps are not a software as a service organization. They are a school. And that was a hard lesson, I think, for us to learn because it's meant that my co-founders are still running a amazing business that is incredibly impactful, but isn't one that has this like hockey stick growth because you need humans to teach. And the need for humans to do more of the things that tech thinks tech will do is a realization that is really slow to come to an industry that, that I think desperately needs it. And for whom this most recent downturn, the third or fourth in contemporary modern tech history, is really, I think, confirming because 
so many of, for instance, in the areas that I focus on, workforce development and education, so many of the times that somebody says, this is the best assessment for your soft skills, for human skills that I've ever seen, I go through the process and feel if there was an actual human asking me these questions, like critical thinking or communication skills, like it's really hard, no matter how good the AI is, to evaluate creativity. And yet we still have this idea that like tech will replace us. Maybe when AI becomes generalized, it will. But in the meantime, we should be emphasizing, even when, even particularly if generalized AI is going to replace us, we should be emphasizing the value of humans and spending more on humans and less on tech, which is really ironic for somebody in tech to be saying. And, and being in that, your role, LinkedIn, I got asked recently, what's the social channel I love the most? Like, I don't really spend as much time on IG or Facebook. Like, I like the Facebook marketplace. You know, Twitter is kind of a, it's a very strange world at the moment. So, But LinkedIn, I love it. <laughs> it, it it's, it's where I hang out probably most of the time. I learn from it. And I finally go there and, and I learned something, right? And we're working with students now. We're saying, hey, man, yeah. that's where people are going to look to for your resume. So tell me about yeah. why LinkedIn cares about workforce development and kind of your role in the LinkedIn world. Totally. I, I was going to ask if you're on Mastodon or whatever no, else. No, I haven't gone there. I haven't gone there. <laughs> Same, man. <laughs> so on LinkedIn, I've been identified with LinkedIn for over a decade. I've worked here for eight years. People call me Jake Dan. I met wow. my wife on LinkedIn for professional reasons before. Jake Dan. <laughs> before I, joined, before I worked at LinkedIn. Uh, this network uh, is, is a part of who I am in a way that I find both amazing because they treat us, our employees, and our members better than I think any other tech company right now, certainly social network. And yet I think I'm also very conflicted by that identification with LinkedIn because many of my values in some ways conflict with, contradict those that LinkedIn represents. In fact, as with any company of our size, right, we were off for 36 billion, I think, five or six years ago. Maybe and you're seven. owned by Microsoft, so it's right? It's company. your parents. We're owned by Microsoft. It's an yep. 18,000 person company now. Like yep. we're talking a big company. But you don't get Xboxes, right? There's no Xbox perks. They don't give you an no, Xbox. Uh, we actually do in the office. <laughs> okay. <I'm laughs> uh, just not at home. <laughs> I always find it important at the outset of conversations like this to clarify those contradictions because for a substantial portion of this conversation, I'm going to be speaking on my own behalf, not on behalf yes. of LinkedIn. Yeah. And so as an example, I am very explicitly an open data, open content, open learning, open source, interoperability, user data ownership advocate. And each of those technical, somewhat complex principles are in tension with LinkedIn's keeping its data within what I think is, again, personally, not on behalf of LinkedIn, a relatively walled garden. and it represents people getting jobs the way that I've always been very good at. And in fact, not just how I get a job, but it's how I sell and build partnerships and think about the world, which is through connecting people to people. But unfortunately, that kind of you know, the social network gets you your job. 80% of people get their jobs based on the social network is, I think, inefficient and facilitates inequality. Right. Like we use terms like favoritism and nepotism. They are covering up a much broader idea that if the way that you get your money or whatever else is based on who you know, mm -hmm. then we're going to consistently be fomenting the increasing inequality. Whereas if as our CEO, and I'm really proud of this because I was one of many at LinkedIn to advocate that we really push for skills based hiring and mm -hmm. skills based learning. But if you could create a world which is going to require another one of these big societal shifts that that would get us away from getting jobs based on who you know could instead match people to jobs based on their potential their skills their actual ability to do the tasks that that job requires 
then I think we would be decreasing inequality, increasing equality, and we would be much more efficient as a labor market. People would be better at their jobs, would be happy in their jobs, et cetera. Mm. The challenge for LinkedIn is that is literally in contradiction to a social network. And I don't think, not speaking on behalf of LinkedIn, I don't think LinkedIn has figured that out, which is why when I have these conversations, I sometimes explicitly identify with LinkedIn. And as I said, no company, I think, treats their employees better. And I couldn't be prouder of the public-private partnerships that I've created on behalf of LinkedIn, in which I'd love to speak about a bit, whether in workforce development and higher education or otherwise, because I think they have been more impactful than any other company could be under these circumstances. Our scale, the quality of our learning content, the quality of our data around skills and jobs is unparalleled. But it also comes with some strings that I find challenging. And in that world, like the resume, the, the LinkedIn learning, like the openness of the LinkedIn learning. Let's talk about that maybe. Again, some incredible Canadian creators, authors. You were saying there's one nearby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like uh, tons that? of people in BC, all over the, the great country. Tell me about LinkedIn learning and, and what your thoughts are on that and kind of like the micro-credentialness of LinkedIn learning. Yeah, totally. Okay, so let's start with like what I think of LinkedIn learning in general, then maybe what I think of micro-creds. And then maybe the intersection yep. of the two. Yes. On the LinkedIn learning side, my second day on the job, LinkedIn announced that they were buying this relatively small company called Lynda.com yeah. for a lot a lot of money. Again, I use Lynda, man. Yeah, That's so awesome. right. Yeah. It had like Linda's face oh, yeah. with glasses oh, yeah. and everything on yeah. it. Linda with a Y. Linda with a Y. Linda Wyman with a Y. You got it. And she created, I think, a fantastic thing that was massively underrated mm -hmm. in education, which yeah. was to say she taught teachers how to teach yeah. using really high quality video content. Yeah. And until that point, the quality of video content hadn't been nearly as high. We have like football field sized mm -hmm. film studios. We have the largest film studios north of Hollywood and North America mm -hmm. producing this content. So like part of what LinkedIn was buying was just a huge production facility. Part of it was a methodology. We pick experts now, interestingly, based on how what skills are in demand on LinkedIn mm -hmm. and who already is able to teach those skills effectively, who's already popular in teaching those mm -hmm. skills. Like what I loved, I'll dive right into the details of how I've worked with LinkedIn Learning. So imagine this library of fantastic content, which can be delivered based on data on what skills you need in a given job. And eventually, I think the really cool thing will be to deliver it based on, like I'm in Microsoft Word talking about project management. I want the LinkedIn Learning pop-up Microsoft owns us to then say, here's the things that we think you know about project management. And then here are the things that you still need to learn about project management from what you're typing. Evidently, there are some gaps. Click here and you can watch a 10-minute video that will be an introduction to teaching you all of those things. Uh, and then here's the community of people you can work with around that, et cetera. And quick jump in on that. Your data that was all over the news recently, LinkedIn puts out a yearly report, the fastest growing jobs in Canada, 2023, number yeah. one being growth marketing managers. Can you talk more about that data, reports that are coming out? Because that's incredible information for, for governments, for schools. Totally. Just before we get there, so let's get back to the, the labor market information, the data. But just before, there's sort of two microcreds and, and LinkedIn learning. So on the example of how I, I was most excited, there's an organization here in Toronto, and it's a nonprofit that helps unemployed people get jobs. Access employment, it's, they help newcomers. And they... I think used our content in some of the most effective manner I've ever seen online learning content used to help underprivileged populations in that they started their videos, their learning pathways is what we call them, 
with content that they had produced, a video of one of their grads on their first day at the job at a new job. And so the folks who were going through these programs who probably had never learned anything online before had honestly probably struggled to find access and are now looking for work in a new country. They saw themselves going through the mm -hmm. same challenging process in this other person who had completed it successfully. So that was the first video. And then the second video would be Oprah Winfrey on communication, right? We have like a lot of star mm -hmm. quality content too. So Richard Branson on entrepreneurship, whatever else. And so they're, then they're like, oh, this is going to be exciting and fun to watch. Not only is it like accessible, I can get, I can do this, but also this is going to be fun. And then you jump into how do you do SEO? Mm -hmm. What is the best way to use acrobat i don't mm -hmm. know and adobe acrobat yeah, yeah. and microsoft uh, paint and you didn't you didn't go with microsoft paint <laughs> microsoft Come paint on. excuse me <laughs> excuse me well the, the reason I, I laughed about the adobe acrobat we also map our content so like when a post-secondary would work with us to use linkedin learning to help a teacher teach they would send us the syllabi and then we would send them back every video of our eighteen thousand. those are courses each of those courses is broken down into videos so we actually have hundreds of thousands of videos we would send them back in a playlist or a learning pathway, all of the videos associated with that syllabus. And I was joking about Acrobat because often keyboarding would be one of the skills on there. And half the time we'd send them things related to a piano and half the times we'd send them things related to a computer keyboard. And so there are still important clarifications necessary. I think Acrobat, like the software and not the person, but it's been a really, that was some of the most exciting work that I've done has been seeing the impact of both LinkedIn's job matching and online learning on populations like the one I just described. To get back to two questions that we you had for me, one is LinkedIn's data, and so it's maybe in opposite order because it's, it really is the data that underlies all this content and how LinkedIn works from matching people to jobs to targeting ads. But the on the microcreds front, let's like maybe pull out a little bit just from LinkedIn. I think our timing was ideal. Linda's was probably a little too early, although well. She did just fine off of her sales, so maybe her timing was ideal because it has taken us a few centuries to understand that higher ed is not sufficiently dynamic in its current form, which is unchanged for thousands of years, but it's taken us a few centuries to realize that we actually need a different system. And in fact, in the past couple decades, not only did we have that realization, which I think governments 40, 60 years ago were like, oh, these institutions are not changing as fast as we need them to, even 100 years ago. But more recently, they've seen competitors who are actually changing, right? So now you, you see the opposite model. You see the boot camps and the MOOCs and the LinkedIn learnings, particularly doing things like micro-credentials, anything less than a certificate or degree. And they're working better. They're getting people into jobs better. They're not necessarily providing that broad liberal arts life lessons network, or life et cetera. Partner, a bunch of other life things. partner, right? Life Business partner. partner like, <laughs> well, LinkedIn well, is doing that. But yeah, but schools were much better. In-person schools were much better yes. for that, right? Like and, I have a 16-year-old. I still want him to go to meet people and hang out. In-person, public, yes. post-secondary. And A, the fact that it's public is important for me ethically yeah. because it, like, it suggests access to, to the populations that won't have it and equality and access. But or even equality in the quality of the education, but also the bundle that goes into a post-secondary, because everybody's talking about unbundling post-secondaries, includes in the U.S., sports facilities are yeah. incredibly important. The residences are pretty important. Uh, extracurriculars, for me, were probably more valuable mm -hmm. than the actual in-class yeah. learning, even if I enjoyed yeah. both a ton. So, so it's that bundle that is changing dramatically, but micro-credentials, it's not like 
people are questioning whether they're the future. They're the present in the sense that an increasing percentage of learning around the world is smaller than a degree or certificate, whether that's on the job at a company where LinkedIn Learning, I think, is now one of the most used learning software content within corporations around the world, certainly big ones, all the way down to I want to get a job as a tradesperson or a nurse, right? Two of the most in-demand jobs, I think, in the world, certainly in North America. And in both cases, you can learn a lot of that by stacking microcreds instead of doing the traditional four-year degree or two-year certificate. No, it's amazing. And and then, and when you talk about it's almost like Lego bricks, right? The stacking of of skills. Precisely, precisely. And actually, yeah, the stacking of skills is even a degree of specificity or narrowness greater than micro-credentials because, of course, a micro-credential is made up of a bunch of content which teaches hypothetically a bunch of skills, particularly if it is put into practice, which it should be, right? Good pedagogy involves actually doing what you're talking about, not just, which is also why you can't do it all online. But to get back to where you get like what skills we should be teaching, so what is LinkedIn Learning based on? Well, it's based on what you asked me about earlier, the data that we have from more job postings and more people who have described them, their professional education backgrounds and what they're looking for than any other place on the planet. We're over 800 million members and we have more jobs than on any database, I think, in the world because we also, for instance, partner really closely and I think effectively, this is a great example of public-private partnerships that work, with governments around job postings. So almost every job, public job board in Canada, from the job bank, the federal job bank, to BC's jobs, are also on LinkedIn, and we push more traffic to those government job boards than anyone else. But we develop more complex relationships. So the partnership, that, the public-private partnership that I'm particularly excited about right now in the U.S. is with an organization called the National Association of State Workforce mm-hmm. Agencies, which is the association of the departments of labor in Canada. We would call it a ministry of labor in every state. And they are now reselling LinkedIn Talent Solutions, our hiring tools, our job matching tools, our data on what skills are in demand, usually called labor market information, and our online learning. So I didn't say that. They're providing all of that to the organizations that help unemployed people get jobs, which are called in the U.S. workforce boards and Canada employment service agencies for free. So the government's paying for it. People are much more effectively getting matched two jobs. In fact, they're even getting pulled into these public workforce systems because over the pandemic in particular, but even before, more people were going on LinkedIn, even if they were quite poor, to look for a job than were going to these workforce boards. And so now they can use, they can like do a search on LinkedIn Recruiter and it'll pop up everybody who's already got their hand up saying, hey, I'm looking for a job. And they can say, hey, come on in. We have food stamps for you and family yeah. supports for you and bus passes for you. And we have the job that you're wow. looking for at this company, and then they can use Recruiter to contact the person in HR at that company and say, hey, we've got the person who you're looking for. This isn't where you were looking because, practically speaking, they were looking at the Ivy League institution, not the local yeah. community college, but the workforce board can in- instead find them there and match them or provide them with online learning to close the gap between what they needed to learn and how to get there instead of referring them to a two-year-long community college certificate that might not be as effective at getting them the same thing. And the irony, I think, in in what I'm saying is some of this is going to balkanize public institutions. I just said, do the LinkedIn learning, not the community college. But most of it, I think if it's coordinated right, if we get back to that earlier conversation about public-private partnerships and how to make them work right, most of it is going to complement and make those public institutions more effective. And an example of that, this is the last (laughs) example I'll give on this tirade, 
bearing in mind that LinkedIn's labor market information skills data is what is underlying all of this, is imagine we had this proposal in, in Washington State, and I think we've circulated in a few other places in Canada as well. BC is a good example because every library in BC already has access to LinkedIn Learning. And in fact, in most library systems in North America that have access, it is the most used resource for skills in the wow. library, right? So when somebody wants to learn the skill in the library, this they would want LinkedIn Learning. And it's provided free by all these libraries, including in BC. But the point being, those librarians aren't trained to help people mm. get a job. They're not even trained to necessarily teach people, right? They're not teachers, they're librarians. And so what we've done is facilitate, or the proposal would facilitate folks going from the libraries into an employment service center where they can then get the career supports, the food stamps, et cetera. And then often from that workforce center or workforce board or employment service center into a community college where they're using LinkedIn Learning to teach economics 101 or how to use Microsoft Excel because that's not the most efficient use of their faculty's time. Rather, their faculty should be spending time interacting with students, supporting them as they use off-the-shelf resources like ours to teach. And then from those community colleges, they're then actually going into a chamber of commerce or some form of economic development organization that'll again, facilitate them going to the right employer. So often they went to that community college, they learned all the things they need to learn, but instead of all going to an Accenture or a Microsoft, these massive employers, let's help the SMBs by providing them with the same recruiting tool because they couldn't afford it if they got it directly, but if they get it by a public-private partnership, then the government's paying way less. The more, the more you buy, the less it costs. That's why I sort of created this system of selling software as a service via public-private partnerships. So the little guys, the community colleges, instead of the U of T's, could actually get a lower price. And in this case, the chamber is buying a large number, so the SMBs can now afford the software to hire these people. I know that's a bit of a complex picture, and I can sort of unpack each part of it, but that sort of summarizes actually a lot of the work I've been doing with LinkedIn over the past eight years. That is incredible. eCampus Ontario. We had Dr. Robert Luke on the show. The stuff he's developing with with kind of like the Lego bricks and the stacking is happening in Ontario. Where do you see, do you see this happening in other provinces and what are you seeing kind of that connection? Oh, for sure. Yeah, and the fun thing is not only is it happening all over the world, but also all over Canada, but it it precedes Robert, who I think is brilliant and doing a great job at eCampus Ontario. I think the province just named him to a new sort of education blue ribbon that higher education committee is what they're calling it, deservedly so, but it it started well before him. I mean, David Porter, who ran eCampus Ontario before him and the few folks who were specifically helping community colleges or the college system in Canada with online learning before David have all, I think, been world thought leaders around how to deconstruct and then reconstruct education in a more stackable, in a more efficient, in a more student-oriented and for society sort of outcomes-oriented, i.e. get people into the right jobs and ensure they have the skills necessary for those jobs than has almost ever been done. And what I also love about this is it's continuing a really long, particularly Canadian tradition around online learning and open learning. So both David and Robert are open education advocates like me, think massive open online courses in their original form when they were free or Khan Academy. Um, Think public post-secondaries, like one college that's particularly good or polytechnic at economics creating the Econ 101 course, putting it online, and then every other institution in Ontario or in Canada should just use the same course. And then again, have their faculty members not spending their time developing that content, but rather interacting with students. I I love that that they've done that. And I think some of the predecessors include like MOOCs in some ways came from BC. They were in some ways designed there. The Athabasca U 
a long time ago, was one of the world thought leaders in online learning. Contact North, this tiny organization here in Ontario, has done some of the best work with Indigenous communities, really remote learning that, that again, the world's ever seen. And so I'm, I think I have been inspired by and taught by and, and proud to come from a long Canadian tradition of deconstructing and reconstructing education in a manner that particularly uses technology to help underprivileged populations. Mm, that's incredible. Now, what I'm seeing though, like, you know, Lighthouse Labs amongst other schools, uh, we're doing at Jelly Academy, partnering with post-secondaries. Where, you talk about PVP, but like, where do you see the best kind of marriage or relationship is between post-secondaries and private institutions? Great question. I think they can both work together on specific mm-hmm. projects. So, one of my favorite institutions in the country because its leader, Mishek, is so dynamic. And the institution, as a result, has just become... And actually, the last president, who's now at Nate, was wonderful as well. I worked with her, George Brown, at each of these institutions. But particularly, let's just focus on, on Bow Valley for a second. I think is one of the more innovative schools in Canada because it's a community college in the center of Calgary. But through this pro- project called Pivot Ed, it's worked with Lighthouse Labs, it's worked with LinkedIn, it's worked with all the folks that I work with, but also dozens of other private organizations to more effectively deliver education and get people into jobs because it has all the limitations of a public post-secondary in terms of like, you want to create a new new degree, it's going to take four years for the government to approve it. You want to create a new certificate, you got to get the union to approve who's going to accept the credential. Those limitations make it really hard for a public post-secondary to to innovate and to develop content fast and to deliver on a rapidly changing labor market, which I think LinkedIn's data shows better than any, is changing faster than our institutions, whether public or private right now, can adapt to. But if you do cobble together these different pieces, as the smartest schools are doing, then I think you actually get better public education and better public-private partnerships and the more functional, effective, productive, equal society. But it's really hard. That's, that's not a, easier said than done. Jake, this is part one of many parts, I hope. Chapter okay, one. Sweet. This is I the intro. This is the first verse. Many more chords to come. I love Jake, it. huge honor to have you on the show. Thank you. My pleasure. My absolute pleasure. Recording at LinkedIn headquarters in Toronto. Very cool. Thanks for making time today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Darren. It's always a pleasure chatting. Thank you for having me. Thanks for everyone for joining us this episode of Marketing News Canada. We'll see you next time on the show. Thanks for listening to Marketing News Canada. For more episodes and other great stories from Canadian marketers, visit marketingnewscanada.com. All episodes are recorded in the Jelly Marketing Studio, thanks to our producer, Chris Penner, and editors, Travis Jeffers and The Podfather. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.